Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, the editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. And today we are in conversation with Tom James and John Collis, who are the co-founders of Tradeflow Capital Management. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing about how Tradeflow has created a new alternative asset class, and at the same time is enabling trade and trade finance. I'd just like to start off by asking John and Tom if they can describe to our listeners what Tradeflow is and how it actually works. Tradeflow is a fund management company. The US dollar Tradeflow Fund is set up to invest in SME bulk commodity trades. So when an SME trader is wanting to uh, transport, say, coffee or rice from uh, Asia to Africa or Africa to Europe, they would in the past have gone to a bank to get finance to do that. But that route is less and less available to SME traders. We set up the fund to step into that gap. What we do is we invest in those trades to enable those SME trades to happen. And of course, part of that is obviously bulk and containerized transportation, some multimodal transportation as well. Exactly. So where the banks have had to step out, I mean, banks want to lend money to everybody, right? But they just can't do it profitably for these smaller sort of bulk trades, whether it's grains or energy or metals. And when we say small, it's not that small. It's still $15 million sort of deals or below tend to be tough for the banks to do it profitably. There are lots of changing regulations and other things. So, you know, we don't compete with the banks, but often collaborating with them, they're often introducing their, their good SMEs who we sort of help nurture and develop further. And eventually, they get big enough for the banks to support them as well. Okay, that's quite interesting. So you've obviously identified a gap there in terms of the trade financing and the sort of smaller to mid-sized players, as you say, up to about $15 million, which is fairly sizable. How did you identify that gap? Was that something from past experience that you had before you set up Tradeflow? Me and John have both been working in and around the shipping and the bunker fuels and the trading environment for many, for a long time, for many decades. And uh, I think we could just see from people who knew the industry how things were getting tougher and tougher. And that was probably as early as 2014-15. We started working on what is now Tradeflow in 2016. It took us good couple of years to really look at the business model, the approach, and then be uh, able to launch the fund in 2018. I think the key questions we had to ask ourselves were, because we could see that the funding wasn't getting through to these SME commodity traders to do their transactions, was whether it was a short-term thing that would just disappear, or whether it was something more structural that had changed in the industry. What we realized was that it wasn't that the banks didn't want to give them money. They just couldn't economically. And so that was how we identified the gap. Then the next big question was to understand why the gap was there and work out a solution for it. That took quite a bit of time. But largely the reasons are that uh, the banks, because of the rules following the great financial crisis in 2008 and the tightening up of the rules around lending, and know your customer, it made it uneconomic for them to lend to SME businesses or newly formed businesses. 
because their risk criteria models made it so expensive for the borrowers that it just didn't work for anyone. And then identifying how to solve it, well, that, that, that was also quite a tricky bit of thought, but we decided the simple answer was just not to lend money to these people. It was a simple question, wasn't it, John? I mean, we spoke to SMEs and said, what were you actually trying to do? I mean, any trader, anyone moving import-exports, they're just trying to get the deal done and get it to the right place at the right time and make a margin on it. So that's where we thought, ah, okay, if we have a balance sheet, in this case, we put it in a fund as opposed to just setting up another private company, and that fund bought the commodity for the trader or the end user, that gets the deal done. And uh, that's the model we've been working upon. It also gives more security to our investors because we are actually asset-backed. We don't take a lien or some pledge of the uh, commodity that's being moved. We actually own it. <laughs> and we also sort of uh, get involved in logistics as well at time. So it turns it back around to the shipping industry and the maritime trade. And when we first started doing this, we had to charter some of our own vessels or be the charterer with uh, SME Trader being our agent under a shipman agreement. A lot of the ship owners were quite surprised. Who were these people? What are they doing? Can they trade? But over a period of months after we started doing it, it was quite reassuring for them, I think, and it's certainly reassuring for us that they recognized that we were a regulated fund. We had millions of dollars behind us. That we weren't a trader as such, the freight and, and uh, all the other associated elements were going to be met from the fund. And it was all absolutely squeaky clean above board because it had to be, because it was investors' money, not a trading company. So everything was very, very clear. It was quite funny initially when back, I think it was November 2018, we chartered our first Supermax. And the sort of shock horror from ship owners, this Cayman fund, what do they want to do with our ship? (laughs) So initially, we had a lot of due diligence and KYC to go through. But being, as John said, a regulated fund, we're completely transparent, so it was easy. So uh, I think nowadays, we're much more known by some of the the big ship owners out there. So uh, as to what we're trying to do, and if anything, we give a lot more assurance to the ship owners that they are going to get paid. And also, we've done a lot of due diligence on the transaction as well. So it gives another level of comfort that the ship owners know that you know this commodity transaction is genuine, very real, and has been checked out by investors. It's certainly quite a different concept. Uh, the fact that you actually own the cargo, you're not financing it, and you're not trading it either. What actually made you come up with that model and the model that people would then invest and enable you to carry this out? I want to say fluke, but it's not true. But it's all part of the plan. I think two years of (laughs) research and development and also, you know, Mm. many decades of experience in the industry, we just realized that looking as a fund manager, we take a very small margin. You know, we could basically, most of our revenue comes from actually making successful revenue for the investors. It's not a trading margin. So we had to really think about how we controlled the risk and had proper oversight of the risk. And obviously, we've all been in the team, been involved with or in banks before. So we've seen all the headaches and problems that have come about with lending to SMEs, particularly in emerging markets, frontier economies. Often, 
it's just difficult to get the data. And so one of the big problems and one of perhaps the biggest reason that we found from banking data why a bank turned down a trade finance application is pretty much they didn't have enough data. It was either not enough KYC data, know your customer data. The company maybe hadn't been running for that long, but the people that are actually running the business have been in the industry for many decades, right? They're usually experts in their particular commodity niche or there wasn't enough profitability. So if we do the KYC, if we have all the data, how do we get that data? The best way to get it is by being a neutral principle. And then that also overcomes the issue of, well, these guys are too small maybe to lend huge amounts of money to for a big cargo, so don't lend them the money. But they have the expertise, they have the know-how, they have the suppliers, they have their buyers, We can do the due diligence and all of that and hold a neutral principle position and and help the trade actually get done. We call ourselves a a trade enabler in this respect. Just in terms of that, I mean, are you able to do the due diligence, I guess, better than, say, a bank is? And also, do you have this concern that at some point you just end up owning the cargo because something does go wrong? That's a very interesting question. It's not that we're better than the bank. We're looking at things in a different way. Because we only deal in bulk commodities with a spot market value, they themselves have an intrinsic value. So all the cargoes we actually buy or invest in have resale value from day to day, from minute to minute, and you can mark them to market. Because we're the owner and we're not lending money to someone, our risk profile is attached to the commodity we've acquired not attached to someone to whom we've lent money. And that enables us to look at the transaction in a very different way from a bank or a lender. Whereas the lender has to look at all the human elements related to whether or not they will be paid back by someone, we only have to look at the elements that we have purchased for X and we're selling for X plus one. And if for whatever reason, say a road washed out, or there was um, a strike at the port and we couldn't sell for our X plus one to our original buyer, we would still own the commodity. It would still be immediately saleable into a spot market. Our risks are totally different. That's why it was much easier for us to approach it from a holistic and physical risk side rather than being lenders. Does that make sense? I think it does. So I would see that the risk would be only if you ended up owning the cargo and that commodity drastically fell in value in a short space of time would be the risk. That would be the ultimate risk. Yeah. And, and to protect us against that, we take the similar approach to protect us that a, a modern day sort of clearing house or exchange like the Singapore Exchange SGX or the Intercontinental Exchange or Baltic Exchange would take, of course, which uh, going back to the, the freight and, and sea topic there. So we never buy the cargo for full 100% of its value. We'll buy the cargo typically at, say, 80% of the value, although that can be different depending on the commodity. And so we have a bit of a price risk buffer. Most of our transactions are 30, 60 days, relatively short uh, cargo trips from end to end. So that's usually more than adequate. 
to protect us against price volatility. There was only a couple of times, I think, during 2020 with COVID when we had a couple of diesel cargoes and uh, oil prices collapsed. Uh, Some of the listeners might be familiar with how WGI crude went negative. That was a very US domestic issue. Oil, unfortunately, did not go negative at the petrol pumps around the world. We didn't see negative bunker fuel prices, unfortunately, but we did see a lot of volatility there. But protect against that, you know, if prices do drop quickly, we then just ask our customers to top up uh, some extra trade support fees. So out of three years of track record, it's only ever happened a couple of times. And that was during COVID, a very, very extreme market situation. Obviously, you came through that fine, because we're talking today. And I imagine our listeners are disappointed that uh, they didn't get negative bunker prices there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you mentioned um, oil there as one of your cargoes. What sort of cargoes are you investing in? Is it specific types? And are you limited to specific trades or is it global? The fund is geographically agnostic. We're global and we have a footprint on every continent now. Our only sort of limitations are countries that are embargoed or where there are issues with dealing with them. They stem either from political risk or sorts of risk. We can't get close to a volcano or something. But in terms of commodities with which we'll deal, pretty much anything that's non-perishable. So no livestock on the whole, no fresh fruit and veg, usually not frozen things either. But otherwise, our mandate's very broad. It's bulk commodities with a liquid spot price. I was just quickly checking there, as of today, we've now seen an enabled trade in over 26 different types of commodities, all sorts of stuff from all over the world. We've got our footprint now, trade footprint. We've done exports out of Mexico, Brazil to Europe, a lot of stuff from ASEAN, across to Africa and also Africa into the Middle East and uh, Europe and back into Asia. We're really pushing it out. Looking at the other side of this equation, who is investing into this fund? Initially, sort of family offices. So our first investors were people who were pretty familiar with commodities, um, family offices who knew the commodity industry or knew the shipping industry or both, in fact came in. And as things have progressed, we now have investors who are from institutions, private banks, multifamily offices, you know, professional investors, primarily, and now starting to be able to ourselves be big enough to talk to the banks and also start looking at uh, financing as well for our fund. But at the moment, it's all the, you know, institutional professional investors, multifamily offices around the world, in Europe and in Asia primarily. And how did you go about finding these investors and getting Tradeflow known as a a new asset class? Like the uh, advert used to say, let your fingers do the walking. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of phone calls, a lot of meetings, a lot of flying around. (laughs) So a lot of legwork. A lot of legwork, yes, yeah. And in the hedge fund industry, after three years, then people start to think that you're becoming established and things don't get any easier, but at least people start to refer people to you. At the start, it's very hard. As we've just done, we've just turned the third anniversary with audited, recorded returns for the fund. So the fund rises effectively in a straight line at about a 30 degree angle, maybe a bit more than that. I'm I'm just picturing the graph in my head. 
but uh, it doesn't deviate from month to month by more than 0.7%. The returns look very much like a fixed income type investment. And that's because of how we devise the fund. We're not there to make one-off mega trades with, with big profits. We're here to finance regular day-to-day trade cycle transactions that go from starfish, whether it's wheat to the mill or energy to the power plant, rice to uh, the warehouse and then out to the distributor. These are regular day-in, day-out transactions. And the margins for people who use the fund are wafer thin. The only way that we can enable that sort of thing is by doing it at scale, multiple, multiple, multiple efforts, uh, iterations of them, and enabling our clients and counterparties to make a decent profit on their trades. And for us, that has to mean that we, we do a lot of them regularly. You mentioned scale there. So how do you achieve that scale? Well, that's through the uh, technology. So I think we're one of the early introducers, certainly to the SME size market for electronic bills of lading. So working with shipping companies um, to use EBLs instead of paper BLs, which also uh, in the in the future helps with scalability, um, just managing the data, certainly uh, also digitization of the trade. So all of our customers apply online for the trades once they're onboarded before they get that far know your customer and anti-money laundering checks just like a bank would do digitally online as well and our systems are plugged into databases all over the world to collect information and check that uh, everything is good being able to of course now with shipping uh, so much data being able to track vessels track containers means that we can on scale actually monitor and make sure stuff is going in the right direction <laughs> and also use the technology to highlight to us when it's not going in the right direction. <laughs> so to put it on example, right now we have a team of 12 people in Singapore. Half of those are probably more around IT and the rest of us are watching screens, almost 90 cargoes at any one time right now floating around and Technology, artificial intelligence, crunching the data of the contracts, the specifications, where the shipping is, delays, weather patterns, everything else, all helps us to to manage that portfolio. And even sometimes give some information to our SME customers as well and help them manage the transaction better. That sort of technology you're using, I mean, it sounds quite complex, that all, the, all the various factors involved, though. Is there kind of like an AI component to this, or how does it work? Increasingly so. We've got some what we call narrow AI, so that's sort of just stuff which does specific things, like uh, read all the data off invoices and bills of lading and quality certificates or certificates of origin, you know, because that's often the hardest bit, first getting the data, so you can then do an assessment of the trade. And if we were having to look through all the paperwork manually, <laughs> they would be highly inefficient, even with thousands of people somewhere in a big office. So it's uh, just not manageable. So AI is initially, I think, helping us and the industry get the data accurately from bits of paper that are flying around with the banks and uh, traders. Um, then also helping us to review and 
scorecard, as we call it, assess those trades and help us in our quick decision making of to approve or not approve uh, that transaction. The other thing about it is we only use tried and tested technology. We don't use anything experimental. It's not that the technology wasn't there when we started. It's just that it wasn't joined up. Lots of technology, lots of information, lots of ways of making things more efficient. What we managed to do was to pick those pieces which were robust and had been tested continually, then link them together so that we could do transactions and make decisions at scale. Of course, we, we are helped by the fact that we only deal with commodities. So a ton of grain is a ton of grain. It's not quite the same as buying Lamborghinis or suits. Just coming back to that relationship with the banks, how has that worked? You've obviously gone into a space that the banks maybe didn't want to be in or weren't willing to be in. So how does that relationship work? It's not that the banks don't want to be there. Banks want to help their clients all the time. But the combination of circumstances has meant that the banks can't help all their clients every time they want to. And so really, we're a collaborative entity with banks. We're not competing with them. We don't want to lend money to their clients. In fact, we don't want their clients' accounts. We have no ambition to be bankers. We want to invest in the trade. And the way it works, in fact, for banks, we're simply a tool in the box for them. They can point their client to us because we use the best practices. We insist on the best risk mitigants. We, we insist that insurance is investment grade. We have rights over fixtures and uh, inspectors and this sort of thing. Then it means that if the transactions work and their client over time gets bigger and does bigger and larger and more profitable transactions, then not only is their client secure and supported, but they become a better client for the bank. And ultimately, when they're doing transactions that are much bigger than the ones our fund deals with, they'll be going back to the bank for that sort of transaction fund. It's very much a friendly relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Earlier on, you touched a bit about um, sort of the chartering of vessels and the shipping side of the business. Is that something that you continue to do? Absolutely, yes, yes. Particularly with, uh, you know, the sort of 50, 60,000 tonne type shipments. John and I spent a lot of time looking at, uh, do we need to charter the ships, you know, for the bulk cargoes? Um, we kind of already knew the answer, but we went through the intellectual exercise with lawyers and uh, other advisors, and, and it came back, yes. We're trying to obviously reduce risks for our investors. We're owning the, the cargo. There's no point owning the cargo if you can't phone up the master of the vessel and say, listen, guys, instead of turning right, you need to turn left. <laughs> uh, so um, in, in the end, we, we, we did that. Of course, the SMEs, they have the mariners, they have the expertise on the day-to-day ship management side of things. And, and as John explained, uh, you know, we empower them as our agents to do so. And that seems to work very well. So in terms of the freight, who's actually paying for the freight here? The fund. So that's another part of the, the risk equation then, essentially, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, analysis of uh, shipping lines, vessels, masters, crew. The data is out there. Um, the information is there. 
because we've invested very heavily in uh, IT and uh, our intellectual property and the capacity of our systems to deal with that, we're quite confident, well, not quite confident, very confident actually, <laughs> about our ability to, to look at vessels and look at the proposals that counterparties put to us for a fixture and accept or decline or propose alternative. We've had to sometimes decline vessels if they're way too old. Normally, we might be hesitant of that. Um, so we always encourage sometimes the, the newer vessels and also you know, make sure they're fully insured. Um, we also always push for the all risks cover on the marine insurance. So sometimes that will dictate which vessels uh, we take. Um, but um, now, that's uh, you know that's that's the power of data these days. Uh, you know we're able to uh, look on the screen and see from satellite and AIS tracking where things are, where they're going. Check the draft. We've also invested in technology which can also go on board the ships, uh, just as uh, sort of. Uh, independent locks on valves etc so you know we can also at least know pre-authorize uh, release of liquid cargoes etc so i think what's great and for us is that in terms of timing there's a lot of accepted technology out there now in terms of iot devices tracking containers tracking cargoes even tracking individual bags of uh, rice these days um, but most importantly, it's accepted, but the price has come down so much. It's now so much more cost-effective for us to be able to track bulk cargoes and even containerized cargoes very effectively and, and even have our own data coming from the containers, for example, that tell us the humidity, the temperature, how has it been handled. And that's also very beneficial for shipping firms because it's no longer, oh, something went wrong. Was it the the, the, the ship? mishandling our stuff and then we can look back and say well no looking at the gps coordinates where it was that was actually the the guys in the port they dropped it or they did something <laughs> so uh you know it, it it helps everybody so the shipping part is also very much technology enabled then absolutely yeah and again that means that with a small dedicated team we can continue to scale up and handle more and more cargo and sit there in the sort of risk management, viewing all of these transactions going on and just get alerted if anything deviates from the plan and then take the action we need. Well, the, the objective is to be the number one choice for any SME or commodity trader investing in their transaction. There's an awful lot of those out there. So um, that's where we're headed. You know, we're busy doing groundwork. We partnered with the International Chamber of Commerce those guys that created the Inco terms, working with them on a new platform called Trade Now, which is uh, to help connect SMEs with financiers and people like us who can help enable trade. So that's an ex exciting channel. ICC has 45 million members around the world and Chambers of Commerce as well. So that's additional resources. And um, they're also quite responsible for certificates of origin in most places as well. So that's a, that's a good partnership. And through them working with the uh, their banking commissions and groups to, to try to actually get more and more bank collaboration and grow their business. I think it's fair to say that the only break 
on, on our growth is the amount of uh, money we have under management. So even now, at any one time, before COVID, we, we could see we were vetted and had available probably 10 times, in terms of value, 10 times the, the, the value of trades as we had actual capital to deploy. Since COVID, that's between 20 and 30 times at any one time. So the trade is definitely there. Trade is there. The, the work to be done is there. The, the, the threat to uh, most uh, economies and societies is that uh, if the money doesn't get to the SMEs, who are the majority of the employers and the actors in the economy, then it's a real spanner in the works. These are the people who employ two-thirds of a population, usually. This is where we, we've got to make things really count because they're the lifeblood. Economies uh, and people taking money home to, to buy the bread for their family. As a result, we're obviously, uh, I don't know if lobbying is the right word, but we're certainly pestering the, 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 the likes of the uh, uh, International Financial Corporation, IFC, and Asia Development Bank and World Bank and people like that saying, listen, guys, we've built a tool here a mechanism that's now got a good track record. We work with banks, you know, and we can enable uh, more trade, particularly uh, with the SMEs, which is a big focus for them as well. I know that it's a big thing that keeps them up at night is how can we access and help more small, medium-sized firms around the world with their trade? So a lot of work and, and some big ambitions, by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Tony just started. Excellent. I look forward to coming back to you in the future and seeing how it goes and telling our listeners uh, what, had, what has happened with Tradeflow Capital Management. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Tom and John. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you very much.